chapter 1. I gave Janet the title to the message this morning, The Last Message of the Old Testament. And then I decided to do it into two parts. So this is the first message on the last message of the Old Testament. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we will have the last, last message of the last message of the Old Testament. That makes any sense whatsoever. I'm glad that um, my words are not inspired, so I don't have to be consistent. I'll just uh, mangle them as I will. But I believe you will see as we go this morning why it was necessary to divide this into two parts. In Malachi chapter 1, let us read the first five verses of the chapter. Malachi writes, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom, and Edom, by the way, is another name for Esau. Esau meant hairy. Edom meant red. Uh, That was just sort of nicknames that were attached to them. The Edomites that are being mentioned here were the descendants of Esau. Okay, verse 4 again. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. We have been in for a long time, for just about a year now, following the history of Israel in the Old Testament, starting with the division of the kingdom after Solomon's death following it down to the disappearance of the northern kingdom destroyed by Assyria, and then finally the captivity of the southern kingdom to the Babylonians. And lately we have been looking at the events that transpired with the return of the captives from Babylon back to their land, a very amazing development that King Cyrus of Persia gave a pronouncement, provision, permission, For all of those that wish to return back to their homeland and to build there a temple for the Lord God. It was an amazing development. And many of them, in fact, did return. And they began to do the work of rebuilding the temple. They laid the foundation of that temple and then became very discouraged. Work ceased for a number of years. Till God sent three men whom we know as the post-exilic prophets. That's Haggai. Zechariah and Malachi, the last three books of the Old Testament, are there because that was the order, uh, the chronological sequence of when these men appeared right at the end of the Old Testament period. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi come and prophesy and stir up the people to complete the building of the temple. Haggai, and, and you might say, well, why were they so reluctant to finish this temple? Well, two reasons. First of all, a lack of resources and manpower. Let's remember that this is not Israel in its heyday. This is not Israel in the days of Solomon when you've got all the wealth at your disposal and all the manpower. This is a ragtag bunch of refugees. We see the refugees out of Kosovo today. Can you imagine being out of your land for some 70 years, then being allowed to go back? Imagine the problems that you'd face just surviving yourself, let alone building a temple in the middle of that kind of environment. But it wasn't just the physical resources that were discouraging. It was also the fact that there were prophets that had prophesied to them while they were in captivity that they were going to return to their land and they would be this gigantic kingdom. There would be this wonderful temple. David, in fact, is said to rule over them. And they're seeing none of that. In fact, there is no kingdom. They're just a Persian province. They exist at the pleasure of Persian kings. There's no great temple. This thing, in fact, the prophets say to those men who were old enough to have seen the first temple. And now he says, you you see what we're building here. How does it look in comparison? Does it not look like nothing in comparison to that first temple that was built by Solomon? I mean, this thing looks like an outhouse compared to what was built in Solomon's day. You know, where is this temple that Ezekiel prophesied about? 
Where's this king? I mean, we don't even have a kingdom, let alone a king. Where are the fulfillment of these things? So it's very understandable why they would grow discouraged. And God sent these prophets to stir them up. We saw in the book of Haggai, for instance, that he commands them to continue work on the temple to complete it because he says, yet a little while, and I will fill this house with greater glory than the former house had. Just wait a little while. Now, keep in mind that little whiles to God and little whiles to us are two different things. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Barry, you pointed this out that a little while in this case was 500 years before that house would be filled with glory. That's a little while to God. It's a long while to you and me. But a little while, he says, and I will in fact perform my promise, you'll see more glory in this temple than you ever saw in the temple of Solomon. Undoubtedly, unquestionably, a reference to the fact that God's own son would come and would make an appearance in that temple. Now, Malachi comes along at the end of these post-exilic prophets, and he deals with two basic areas. First of all, he deals with the evil that is being committed within the nation of Israel with the problems that exist there. And that's the part that we're going to deal with this morning. Secondly, and what we'll put off till next Sunday, Lord willing, is the fact that he tells them that indeed the Messiah is about to appear, but when he appears, are they ready for him? Will they be able to stand? And that is language that is used oftentimes speaking of standing in judgment. In other words, Christ's coming, all right, but are you ready for his appearing? Are you ready for what's about to happen? And then we'll deal with that next Sunday. This morning I want to deal with the subject at hand, the matters of what was going on in Israel, things that needed correcting. You will see, first of all, as you study the book of Malachi, that it is a book that deals with spiritual ignorance, what we might call stupidity. Now, I'm not talking about being stupid in the sense of not having a high enough IQ, but I'm talking about being foolish. You know, ignorance, the very root, is ignore. It's not that you don't have the capacity to know. You should have known, but you have been ignorant of these things. Now, I, I like to, um, every now and then, things float to me over the Internet, and one of the things I enjoy is the annual Darwin Awards, if you're not familiar with them, but they're given to the person who helped the gene pool out by basically killing himself in the stupidest fashion to get stupid genes out of the gene pool. That's why they're called the Darwin Awards. And I I guess that sort of shows you the morbid sense of humor that I have that I actually enjoy these. I mean, you have some that make honorable mention. Now, I think they're pretty good, and they just get honorable mention. I mean, the Arab terrorists, for instance, that sent a mail bomb and didn't put enough postage on it, and it was returned to him, and he forgot what it was, opened it up, and blew himself up. I mean, that's the kind of thing that the Darwin Awards, and he just made honorable mention. I mean, he didn't win the prize. But, you know, we sort of revel. I'm not, I hope I'm not making mockery or making fun of people, and certainly people who are, perhaps don't have the capacity to be smart. But let us say that we're not dealing with IQ here. We're dealing with foolishness, with folly, with ignorance of not acting like we know we should act. Not thinking straight, not thinking through something. Uh, there was a popular song here a year or so ago about the guy saying, here's your sign. You know, you give this sign basically saying I'm stupid to people. He said, you just think about the money we could save if we didn't have to put warning labels on things like lawnmowers. You know, do not put your hands under the deck while it's operating. I mean, why do you have to put stickers, warning signs? Because somebody is foolish enough to do that. And so he was just saying, you know, how much we could save if we just handed people signs that said, I'm stupid. You wouldn't sell a person like that, a lawnmower, you know, just don't give him things like that. Well, that's the idea, and I know that's a rather humorous way of approaching a very serious topic this morning, but that's what we're dealing with. A nation that is exhibiting their foolishness and their folly and their ignorance and exhibiting it over and over and over again. In fact, throughout the book of Malachi, you'll have God make a statement. And then he'll say, but you'll say, well, wait a minute, we don't know what you're talking about. Where in? 
Wherein? That's a very interesting word. Notice here in verse 2 of our text, I have loved you, saith the Lord, and yet ye say, wherein? How have you loved us? And you'll find that sprinkled throughout the book of Malachi, God making a statement and they responding just like your children do, you know. They look at mom and dad like you don't have any sense, don't have sense to come out of the rain. What are you talking about? And they are exhibiting thereby their utter ignorance of spiritual things. I want to show you in hopefully quick succession seven indications of Israel's spiritual wickedness. And you know... You can see some look on some of your faces already. The very moment I say I'm going to have seven of something, you know we're in trouble. This could go into extra innings. But uh, at any rate, we, let's get started. Let's deal with these seven areas of spiritual ignorance that are exhibited here in the book of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 1, and in our text that we read in verses 1 through 5, they first exhibit their ignorance in that they are ignorant of God's love for them. Now, this text is a very interesting one. It's one, of course, that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9, dealing with the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation, that he has the right to choose whom he will. Esau, have I hated? I've loved Jacob. Um, and it, but, but what I want to do this morning is not so much delve, delve into that, that we've done in studying through the book of Romans, but look at the context where this text arises. You'll notice it is a statement, God telling them that he loves them. And yet they are looking back and saying, no, you don't love me. It reminds me of a child that is being disciplined. You know, you give them good spanking. I remember being on the receiving end of some of those. And then your parents say, well, we're doing this because we love you. And you won't look at them and say, right. You know, sure you are. That's, of course, that's the idea that if you didn't love them, you wouldn't discipline them. And the Word of God states that, that in fact, to be disciplined of God is one of the sure tokens of his love for us. He never spanks anybody's kids but his own. That's what the book of Hebrews is telling us. He disciplines his own. And if we are saying that we're God's children but we're not receiving discipline, then we're really not his. What? is being laid before us is in verse 4, the, the idea that Edom, this nation that descended from Esau, is looking at Israel returning back to their land. They're seeing that the Israelites are getting to go back home, rebuild their temple, rebuild their city, and so Edom is saying, well, we're going to go back too. We're going to rebuild. And God says, oh, no, you're not. You may build, but I'll cast it down. The nation of Edom was effectively brought to an end, never did re appear in human history. And God is saying, don't you understand that the fact that you are back in your land, back with a temple, back in your home, that I have re-inaugurated my covenant with you, do you not understand this is a token of my love for you? In other words, we can never equate God's love for us by the circumstances that we are experiencing at the time. I mean, Israel is saying, God, if you really loved us, you wouldn't have sent us into captivity. We wouldn't have had to come back. We wouldn't have had all these problems. wouldn't have to rebuild a temple if you really loved us. In the same way, you and I sometimes uh, say, God, if you really loved me, you wouldn't have put me in the hospital. God, if you really loved me, you wouldn't have taken my child. If you really loved me, I wouldn't be having these financial difficulties. You know, I hear all this health and wealth and prosperity and happiness, and why is it that I've got so many troubles? God, it must be that you don't love me. And the New Testament constantly reminds us that what the circumstances that we might be facing at this moment are never the criteria by which we ought to judge whether God loves us or not. In fact, we're to understand that his love transcends the circumstances. There at the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul writes those wonderful words, I'm persuaded that neither life nor death nor all of these troubles, angels, powers, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
He talks about the fact that even though tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword, even though those things come upon God's people, they are never to view them as separating them or a fact, a token that God does not love them. Now, you and I, if we love our children, the very things that Paul lists there are the things that we try to keep from happening to our kids. Right? Tribulation, sword, peril, nakedness, famine, all of those things... Because we love our children, we do our best to keep those things from them. But Paul reminds us, do not question God's love when these things come upon you. They cannot sever you from that love. You say, oh, but I wish I had some objective way, something that I could look at and see that God indeed loved me. Let me point you to yon hill, Calvary's hill. Because the New Testament constantly points men to that cross and says, There, if you want to see God's love, in this was manifested the love of God. Here it is. When God sent His Son into this world to die for sinners, there's the token, there's the objective demonstration of God's love. So first of all, they are ignorant of that love of God. Secondly, in chapter 1, starting with verse 6, They are ignorant of the fact that they are dishonoring God. Notice verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priest that despise my name. And yet ye say, and here it is again, wherein, what are you talking about? Wherein have we despised thy name? In other words, you have not honored me, you have despised my name. You say, well, how is it that they've done this? In verse 7, he explains, in that you have placed polluted bread or polluted food on my altar. Now, what he means by that as you read on, that they have offered on the altar of sacrifice, sacrifices that were sick, Sacrifices that were blemished, deformed. In fact, God says, um, why don't you give these things to your governor? See if he'll be pleased with you. Why don't you pay your taxes with a few of these deformed lambs that you've offered to me? Let's see how your governor views these things, whether he's pleased by these things or whether he is in fact insulted that you did not offer to him your very best. You see, your esteem for God is going to be demonstrated by the value of what you sacrifice for God. Let me say it again. Your esteem of God is going to be demonstrated by the value of what you sacrifice for God. I remember reading a story of a missionary in India he met a woman who had two baby boys. One was a very healthy baby. The other a very sickly child. And he asked her, where are you going? And he said, she said, I'm going down to the Ganges River. And I'm going to offer one of my sons to the God of the Ganges. Well, he met her in a little while coming back. And she still had this sickly baby in her arms, but the other baby was gone. And he stopped her and he realized what had happened, that she had in fact gone, as so many in India do, and cast that baby in the river. And he says, but why didn't you give the sickly child? And she said, we Hindus are not like you Christians. We give our God our best. Hmm. Hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? As misled and deceived as the woman was, she had a point. What summed it up? What is it that we owe God? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. And what do we give God? The leftovers of our time, our energy, Our money. Don't you think he knows when he's getting leftovers? When he's getting the polluted bread? 
when we despise His name by what we place before Him. Well, that's another area of spiritual ignorance. I better keep moving or we won't get through. The third area is the priest showing contempt for the law. Down in Malachi 2, starting in verse 1, he dresses the priest in particular that they of all people should have been honoring God. Notice, let's read Malachi 2, verse 7. This is what God says about the priest. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth. In other words, the people would seek the law of God at the mouth of the priest. Keep in mind, they didn't have scrolls of the law in every home to know what the law said. You had to go talk to the priest. So the idea is the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they, that seek, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye are departed out of the way, ye have caused many to stumble at the law, ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in my law. In other words, of all people, the responsibility was upon you, priests. It was at your mouth that the people should have heard God's law. They should have been instructed at his word, and instead you misled them. You deceived the people. And so, you've been partial in your service to me. I'll be partial in my honoring of you. Partial, not in the sense of the word we use it. You know, to be partial to someone is sort of to be inclined in their direction, but partially bless them. This whole chapter, of course, is explaining how the people got to be in such a rotten condition, and part of it was because of the leadership, and it always is that way. The leadership was despising God. Well, I won't go into that lest I start preaching to myself, but inevitably that's the reason for spiritual decline. Spiritual decline in the congregation comes about because of spiritual decline in the pulpit. It's always that way. Fourthly, They are mistreating and abusing their brothers and sisters. In Malachi 2, starting in verse 10, we have yet another area. And notice that this is for the first time dealing with something that actually regards man to man. What we would say are horizontal relationships. You know, we tend to think that as long as it's not hurting anybody, it's okay. But the very first things that God points out as being a problem in the relationship between he and God is not what they're doing to each other. It's their attitudes towards him. Now, however, we get to that second area, and part of it has to do with the idea of unlawful divorce. Treacherously, dealing treacherously with the wife of your youth is what's being, being addressed here. Now, keep in mind, there are some times that there are lawful grounds for divorce, all right. But we're not dealing with that here. We're dealing with treacherous activity, profaning. You say, well, why does this upset him so? Why is it that God gets so upset at men, for no good reason, divorcing their wives or the marriage covenant being put to an end? Well, I can sum it up this way. It brings back bad memories. Because, you see, he had a wife that ran off with another. Not with another man, but with another God. Look look here in Malachi 2, verse 11. Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. Throughout the Old Testament, the relationship between God and Israel was viewed as a covenant of marriage. And so the idea is is that Judah, in forsaking their God and going and worshiping Baal and Astrith and we can list the names of the gods, any god that came down the pike, is a picture of spiritual adultery. And so it is on the human level why God hates divorce is because he has experienced the same in Judah's activity towards him on the spiritual level. You'll also notice that there's more than just the fact of divorce going on here. Look in chapter 3 in verse 5. In chapter 3 in verse 5. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against the false swearers, 
against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, and that turn aside from the stranger from his right and fear not me. In other words, you do these things on the horizontal level because you do not fear me on the vertical level. You say, what in the world has gone wrong in our society today that we have what's going on going on? What, what's, what's happened? Why is it that we have crime going through the roof? Drug use. Uh, Kent, when he was with us just a couple of Sundays ago, talks about the fact that we lead the Western world in, in areas that we're not proud of. The most people in prison. Why, why is that true? Why is it that our, that our society is going to hell in a handbasket, as we say? I've got one easy answer. We don't fear God. That's what, that's what Malachi is saying. You do these things, says God, because you don't fear me. You have no respect, no honor for me and for my covenant. Then fifthly, in chapter 2 and verse 17, and here's one I want you to camp on just a minute. Malachi 2 verse 17. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? Here's, here it is again. How do we do that? What are you talking about? Wherein have we wearied him? Here's the answer. When ye say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or, where is the God of judgment? You weary me with your words when you teach that men can do evil and yet be good in the sight of God, and that God delights in them. Let me try to rephrase that in a way that we would understand. And I believe this is one of Satan's oldest ploys, that men can live in sin and yet still be considered right and good in the sight of God. Now hear me. Because you say, well, wait a minute, uh, I thought that's what the gospel was. Is not the good news of salvation that I can be a sinner and yet be just in the sight of God through the substitutionary work of Christ, through the atonement, the blood atonement that was rendered at Calvary's cross? Isn't that what the gospel is? That I can be a sinner and yet be just and righteous in the sight of God? Well, let me put it like this. God's purpose in salvation is most certainly to justify the ungodly. But not that they continue to live ungodly. That's not God's aim in salvation. His purpose is not to save you in sin, but to save you from sin. And we have warning after warning in the New Testament especially that we are never to take the doctrine of salvation by grace alone and twist it and pervert it and turn it into a doctrine that teaches licentiousness. Lasciviousness is a word that's used. Go to the book of Jude. Next to the last book in the New Testament. Jude. Verse 3. Jude verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now keep in mind Jude's writing in the first century and he's already telling them they've got to defend the gospel against those that would pervert it, those that would teach something contrary to it. Era, you see, is nothing new. The old saying is the canon of era closed shortly after the canon of truth. That's happening here. Look at the problem. Verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God in our Lord Jesus Christ. The problem is that they are taking grace and turning it into a license to sin. And to sin with impunity. To sin now with a clear conscience. To sin now and still be assured of heaven. I, uh, we, we certainly believe in sovereign grace around here. And we proclaim those wondrous doctrines of grace. But my friend, uh, one of the things we've always got to be on guard against is the idea 
that salvation by grace means, implies that now we are free to sin. In grace circles, those things sometimes are implied. They may not be stated explicitly true. That he said that David was just as pleasing to God when he was in the arms of Bathsheba as when he was dancing before the Ark of the Covenant. Now, technically, and in one sense, that is true. If If David was a justified man, Justification does not allow of degrees. You either are justified before God or you're not. And if you are, you're never going to get more justified or less justified. In other words, you're never going to lose your salvation. If God has justified you, He has declared you not guilty for the sake of Christ His Son, and so forth. Okay. But on the other hand, my friend, what does that imply to you and me sitting out there in the pew? If I were to tell you that, does that not imply that then it's okay for me to lust? Does it not imply that that's all right? I mean, after all, David was just as pleasing in one circumstance as in the other. The fact is, you go to the text, you go back to where David committed adultery with Bathsheba. The last verse of the chapter says, the thing which David did displeased the Lord. If you don't think it displeased God, you read the rest of David's life. Don't you think there were a million times that he wished he hadn't gone out on that rooftop that night? In other words, the idea that there are no consequences to sin and that it's all right since we're justified in the sight of God, we're justified by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that therefore it's okay for me to sin. My friend, that's an idea that's abhorrent to the New Testament, to the Gospel itself. It abhorred the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6. His opposers say, after they've listened to him, define free justification through the substitutionary work of Christ, through grace that is given to us as a free gift. They say, aha, that means then that we can sin. You know, God likes to forgive sin. He gives grace, so I'll just give him lots of sin to forgive. You know, he does his part by forgiving, and I'll do my part by sinning. Paul responds, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? The whole thing misunderstands what salvation is all about. It's not some transaction. It's not just a transaction that takes place outside of us. Oh, it's that. It's in the courtroom of heaven that God has declared us just. But my friend, salvation is also something that takes place in here by which we are joined to Christ in a vital, living union. We may no longer stand before the judge as a condemned criminal. We've married the judge. We've married into the family. We're not under the law. We've become in-lawed to the law, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. We've married into the family. We've married the judge. Well, we certainly have a different relationship to the law than we did before. But my friend, the moral duties are still there and incumbent upon us. Go to 1 John chapter 3. We're fixing to study 1 John on Monday night where John gives us a number of the symptoms of spiritual life. How do we know we have life? Look at this warning. 1 John chapter 3. Well, let's back up. Let's, I was going to start a little later, but let's start in verse 2. 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, and the He here is Christ, when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as He, and the He here referring to Christ, as He is pure. In other words, there is, one of the symptoms that a person is indeed saved is that he wants to be like Christ. And he says, when He appears, we're going to be happy because we're going to be as He is. Go a little later in this chapter, verse 7. Little children, let no man deceiveth you, deceive you. 
He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. And for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, that, these verses have caused a number of uh, problems to a number of people. They say, wait a minute, I know good and well that I sin." Is John saying here that because I sin, therefore I'm not a Christian? I'm not a believer? It says, whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. Well, let us understand it in the sense that John obviously intended it. We do not practice sin. He cannot mean that we do not commit sin in the absolute sense, or he'd contradict what he says in 1 John chapter 1, that if a man say he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. What he says in chapter 2, verse 1, that if we sin, and he's talking about Christians, that we have an advocate with the Father. We've got someone to whom we can go and confess our sins. But what he means is, like a doctor practices medicine and a lawyer practices law, you and I, if we are Christians, we do not practice sin. And he says, don't be deceived on this matter. Don't let anybody turn, you know, tell you otherwise. You can walk down a thousand aisles, say a thousand sinners' prayers, have a thousand preachers pray over you and pat you on the back and give you assurance of salvation, and you'll go straight to hell. If God has not done a work of grace in your heart uniting you to Christ, if the Holy Spirit has not come into your heart and changed you, placed within your heart a love of what's right, not because you're going to be rewarded for what's right, but just because it's right... If you cannot say with the Apostle Paul, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Then my friend, you don't know anything about what John is saying here. They that are saved have got something within them that desires to be like Jesus. They pursue holiness, to use Jerry Bridges' title of his early, early book. And I won't camp on that because he's going to be with us. But... um, That's our goal. That's what we're doing in this Christian life. We're chasing holiness. You're never going to catch it in this life. You're going to catch it in heaven. But in this life, if you're God's, if you belong to Christ, you're going to be chasing it. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord, he goes on to say. Oh, don't let somebody kid you. Oh, uh, we could just stay here, but I must go on. Let's go on to something easier. Let's talk about money. Because when most people think of the book of Malachi, about all they know is Malachi 3.10. At least I was brought up with this verse drilled into me, bring you all the tithes into the storehouse. It has to do with tithe. I mean, you talk about only time the preacher ever preached about Malachi, on Malachi was when he was preaching about tithing. I mean, that was just a given. I, didn't, I knew absolutely nothing about the rest of the book of Malachi. I just knew that it had something to do with money. And it does. God says to the people, you're robbing me. And they say again, wherein have we robbed you? How in the world have we robbed you? And he says, with your tithes and your offerings are with you, not giving your tithes and your offering. The tithe was a tax that was placed upon Israel, God's tax, as it were, upon his people. It was the recognition on their part that they belonged to God. It was their response to the fact that God had chosen them as his covenant people. Now, indeed, we are in different circumstances. We're in the New Testament age, not the Old Testament. We are not in a theocracy. There's a number of differences To be sure, the tithe is never appealed to in the New Testament as the basis for why we as Christians ought to give our money. Never one time. But on the other hand, my friend, I can tell what you believe by how you respond with your pocketbook. That's the inevitable fact. They responded because of God's goodness to them in types and shadows. 
we have the substance. We have the real deal, as we say. Do you suppose that there is less of an obligation on my shoulders now when it comes to giving, as was opposed to Israel in that Old Testament day? You know, this I realize, and I I hope some of you are here for the first, second time may not know this, but I don't spend much time here talking about money. And in fact, uh, the Lord has been very good to us as a church, and our people have been a very giving and responding people when it comes to financial things. And I find that everywhere I go, that people who love the gospel of Jesus Christ are a giving people. That's just, uh, it just goes along with it. But on the other hand, this is here as a warning that when God opens our hearts, He also opens our pocketbooks that we desire to be gracious people as we have received grace ourselves. It's, again, not a rule over our head that's suspended there that we get our hands slapped if we don't do it. God obviously takes into consideration what we have, how much we've got, what we've got. He knows those things. But on the other hand, let's don't fool ourselves of being committed to God with our mouths and not our pocketbooks. And then lastly, and I know many of you were waiting on me to say that word, lastly, the final area of spiritual ignorance is down here in chapter 3 and verse 13. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. And again, they're ignorance. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? And he says, ye have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. In a nutshell, they have turned the principles of the kingdom of God upside down. They've got it all backwards. They're basically saying, how has it helped me to serve God? What am I getting out of this? That was basically Job's complaint. You know, here I've always been a godly man, always towed the line, and look at all this stuff that God's dumped on me. Surely there's been a foul up in the great computer up there in the skies. I wish I could catch God in his office sometime. We'll get this thing straightened out. I ought to have a big credit to my account, and I'm getting all these bills. You know, what in the world's going on here? And Elihu, when he deals with Job, says, Job, you're thinking like a man thinks. How have you helped God when you serve him? You know, there's God up there. He's hungry, so he needs you to feed him. needs something done, so he has to rely on you to do it. You haven't advantaged him at all. You don't do right for the sake of what you're getting out of it. And that's the complaint here. They're saying, you know, how has it helped us that we're serving God? I mean, here we are, a pitiful bunch of refugees back from bondage. But what are we getting out of this thing? And further, he says, you're calling the proud happy. Or let's use a New Testament word, blessed You see, rather than blessed are the meek, you're saying blessed are the proud. Rather than they that mourn being the blessed, you're saying they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. I believe if there was ever a a diagnosis of our day, this is it. Because you look at the people who are promoted by our popular culture. And those that blaspheme God the most are the ones who are promoted. I mean, they're the ones who get their face on People magazine. They're the ones being interviewed on all the talk shows. The more you blaspheme God, the more you uh, elevate the proud and the wicked, the more you get your face in the limelight. It's precisely what we see going on in our day. It's true of us that power matters, matters more than principle. Money matters more than morals. Charisma matters more than character. And it's true from the president on down. The stouter the words, the more our culture honors and values those words. And you say, what's the problem? The problem is, that's the world out there, folks. You say, but they're supposed to be America. We're supposed to be a Christian nation. No, it's the world. I mean, let's get over that notion. It's the world. It's lost people. That's how they think. 
That's what makes them tick. And when we come along and preach the gospel, they say of us, as they said of Paul, they that have turned the world upside down have come here also. My friend, we're not turning the world upside down. We're getting it right side up. They're the ones got it upside down. They're the ones saying the blessed man is this proud man, the wicked man. No, no. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. There's the truly blessed, happy man. We're getting it right. We're not, and, and you got this idea that the man that gets on a religious kick, he's gone out in the left field and scattered his marbles. My friends, the other way around. When we come to Christ, we finally come to our senses. We're getting our marbles gathered up and coming in from left field. We're finally coming to face what's truly real and right. Well, I've got to close. I hope that you understand that preaching the gospel means that we preach not only free justification, but we preach the necessity of a sanctified life and a walk with Christ. In a sense, it's preaching substitution. But a lot of times, and especially in gray circles, we get the idea that the only substitution that matters is substitutionary atonement. And we love the idea of a Christ who dies on a cross over yonder as a substitute for our sin. My friend, that's not the only kind of substitution the Bible speaks about. It also speaks of a substitution that goes on in here. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And we love the fact of a substitute over yonder on that cross, but what about a substitute in here? Living out within us the principles of His kingdom. How does that float our boat? Christ did not come so that heaven would be populated with a bunch of sinners. He came to populate heaven with a people that used to be sinners. But now they're saints. To use the book of Revelation and the imagery there, they've washed their robes and they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They had dirty robes, filthy, defiled, blemished, but they washed. And the blood of Christ has cleansed them, not only from the guilt of sin, but is in the process of cleansing them from the very power and presence of sin. And that will be, in fact, culminated when we see Christ in glory. Oh, one of the reasons that we want to see Christ. Oh, we love Him. We love Him whom we've never seen. We've fallen in love with Him basically because of some love letters He's written us. I had a cousin do that. She fell in love with her husband. He was over in Vietnam. Fell in love with him just by reading his letters. He came home. They got married. Well, we've fallen in love with Christ. We've never seen His face. But we've fallen in love with Him over these letters He's written us. And we want to see Him. I want to see His glory. I want to see His beauty. But my friend, there's another reason we want to see Him. Because when we see Him, we shall be made like Him. And this battle that we've been fighting since day one, fighting sin, warring against the lust of our flesh, will finally be over and it'll be won. Oh, what a day that will be. If you have not that hope within you, if that's not your goal, if that's not where you're at, then my friend, I warn you, I warn you, on the basis of God's Word, let no man deceive you. Don't be ignorant. And if you say, well, I'll just go on living like I want to, I'll fulfill my lust as I please, indulge in whatever sin I wish, and when I die, I'll go to heaven, just like everybody else. My friend, I've just got one thing to say to you. Here's your sign. Utter ignorance. Don't be deceived. Let us pray.
Father, bless us as we would seek after you, as we would seek to understand your word and have it applied to our hearts. Father, these are uncomfortable issues. We enjoy hearing about how Christ has fulfilled his work, paid the price for our sin, and rightly we should, and we glory in it. But oh, how we would love, the flesh within us would love to overlook these things, the demands that fall upon us because we are now Christ, the evidences that we in fact are regenerated Father, we'd love to just tear these parts of the Bible out so we didn't have to deal with them, didn't have to hear them preached. The fact that what we say we believed is going to be evidenced by how we live and how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we spend our energies. It's going to be revealed, Father, by how we think of you, whether we honor you or not, what we offer you, whether it's the deformed and the diseased, or whether it's the very best that we can set before you. But Father, may we honestly face your word today. May we apply this grid, the standard of your word, to our own lives. By thy spirit, would you reveal where we are with thee. Lord, if there's one deceived here, thinking that they're on the road to heaven when they're in fact headed to hell, may this be the day that their eyes are opened, that they're aware of that fact. Lord, if I'm deceived, I want to know. I want to know the truth about myself. Open my eyes if I'm deceived. And, oh, Father, I know of no one who's easier to be deceived than me myself. I don't have to look at the person out there. I know my capacity for deception, how prone I am. And it makes me tremble. And it makes me see my need of a Savior who can keep the very elect from being deceived. Not that they would not be, but that He will not allow it. Oh, Father, it causes to well up within my heart all sorts of doubts about me. But, Father, that's good that my confidence does not rest in me. But it rests in Your Son. And it rests on the firm foundation of Your Word. Cause us all to be honest today. Thank You, Father, that we can also look within and say, Yes, I see these things. Oh, not to the degree I'd love to see them, but yes, there is a genuine love for Christ in my heart. And it shows itself by what I do, how I act, how I behave myself in this world. Thank you, Father, that there are those evidences. And oh, Father, make us to yearn for that day when we shall see Christ. Thank you for your word. Indeed, it's a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. It's that plumb line that establishes truth and error. May we cleave unto it. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.